Okay, we're going to get started. Good afternoon and welcome to the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Chris Carroll and I am chair of CHEST's Critical Care Network and co-host of today's webinar. Today we'll be discussing COVID-19, is it viral sepsis or something more? I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Casey Cable. Thank you, Chris. Very excited to be here. I'm an assistant professor at VCU Health. And we're honored to have two renowned experts on infectious diseases and critical care, Dr. Tim Buckman and Dr. Mike Klompis, who will be joining us to discuss today's topics. Uh, welcome. Uh, Dr. Buckman, would you like to introduce yourself? Good afternoon. Thanks so much, Dr. Carroll. It, uh, Dr. Cable, Dr. Klompis, it really is a privilege to be here. My name is Tim Buckman, uh, and I'm speaking today as an individual. I'm professor of surgery anesthesiology and biomedical informatics at Emory, where I was the founding director, now emeritus, of the Emory Critical Care Center. I'm editor-in-chief of Critical Care Medicine and Critical Care Explorations, and I serve the United States government part-time uh, in an IPA role as senior advisor to the Division of Research, Innovation, and Ventures at BARDA. Thank today, you. I want to have a the opportunity to speak with all of you about uh, what is on all of our minds, and that is the public health emergency due to SARS-CoV-2 and the disease it causes, COVID-19. I'd like to start this afternoon uh, by chatting a little bit uh, about uh, what viral sepsis is. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna ask Beth if she'll bring up the first slide. Perfect. So what is a virus? The Nobel laureate, Peter Medawar, uh, who taught us so much about immunology, famously described a virus as bad news wrapped in a protein. And if you'll click forward, uh, the uh, bad news here is nucleic acid. Click forward. Uh, this is David Baltimore's classification uh, concerning viruses. Uh, seven classes, including uh, DNA and RNA viruses, click forward if you will. And uh, there are the uh, two classes of single-stranded RNA viruses. We're talking today about a class four virus, uh, SARS, MERS, and now the novel coronavirus, forward. Our talk is really all about single-stranded RNA viruses, next. And for our purposes, what viral particles do, they're not independent life forms, they're simply subcellular terminators. These inanimate particles invade the host cell, they steal information, either DNA or RNA, in this case RNA, they replicate, they kill the host cell, and then it's rinse and repeat. Next. This is where we were with the current pandemic back in mid-February. Uh, in mid-February, across the globe, there were just under 70,000 uh, cases and uh, just under 1,700 deaths. We click forward to the current day. We are now over 3.8 million confirmed uh, cases worldwide with over 267,000 deaths. And as the uh, graph in the lower right shows, uh, we have not yet leveled off globally. Next. 
Let's look at that in the context of two centuries of viral epidemics by deaths. If we look at the 20th century, there were 100 million deaths due to the Spanish flu, where the pathogen was influenza. And following that, there were 30 million deaths uh, due to HIV AIDS. Even as recently uh, as 1968, 1969, we had a viral pathogen uh, causing over a million deaths, the so-called Hong Kong flu. Now, if we click forward to the 21st century, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the disease that it causes, COVID-19, is now uh, the leader in deaths due to viral pandemics. Today, again, over 267,000 deaths. Next. Now, we're familiar with severe viral illnesses. This didn't cause uh, as great a pandemic uh, as we are experiencing now, but it certainly has caused and continuous, continues to cause a serious uh, viral illness, which is in fact viral sepsis. Next. We didn't see much of it in the United States. In fact, at Emory, which is uh, my home, uh, our special uh, communicable disease unit illustrated here housed only three patients. Next. But that brings us to a conversation about sepsis. And the contemporary view of sepsis is that we see failure of vital organ function, biological controllers fail, cells and tissues fail due to infection. It may be infection with common bacteria, common viruses, common fungi, organisms from the developing world such as cholera, exotic organisms such as Ebola, but what it all has in common is sepsis. Next frame. Sepsis is a, the body's response to infection. This was recognized by Osler, who as uh, early as the beginning of the 20th century, observed that except on few occasions, a patient appears to die from the body's response to infection rather than from the infection itself. Next frame. Uh, the late Lewis Thomas remarked that our arsenals for fighting off bacteria, and you might as well substitute viruses here, are so powerful and involve so many different defense mechanisms that we're more in danger from our responses than we are from the invaders themselves. We live in the midst of explosive devices. We are mined. Next frame. And that is how sepsis is currently defined. It is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to an infection. And I submit that that is what we are dealing with. Next frame, the coronavirus. Here you see viral particles bursting from a single cell. These viral particles cause life-threatening organ dysfunction that all too frequently culminates in the death of the host. This is the definition of viral sepsis. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Michael Klumpus, uh, and invite him to introduce himself and offer his initial perspective.
Lovely. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I'd like to thank the, uh, the organizers, the ACCP, Dr. Carol, Dr. Cable, for the opportunity to talk. And always a pleasure to, to see Tim and to be able to uh, discuss these issues with him. Um, I'm an infectious disease doctor and the hospital epidemiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital in, uh, in Boston. And again, it's a pleasure to be able to discuss this topic. I think Dr. Buckman outlined beautifully the core concept of a virus and of sepsis. And I think that uh, the um, was striking, of course, was that your initial definition of a virus is bad news wrapped up in a protein, I think um, re really brings us to, to, to the key point over here, which is that in some subset of patients, this is without question bad news. It ends up causing a uh, multi-system organ failure, which does for all the world look like, uh, like, like sepsis. So I think, I think there, are two, there are a couple of questions over here. So first of all, um, this pathogen has a very wide spectrum of disease activity, running all the way from asymptomatic right through to death. And so you have this a, a common pathogen with many, many different routes that can take through, through, through the body. So that's something to think about. Now that's certainly true of a bacteria as well. The same bacteria can cause a range of illness inside of an individual. But that is, is um, one notion that this is, this is not automatic, that everybody with this virus is going to go down that, uh, that, that pathway. The, uh, the, the second factor is this perennial debate. When you talk about sepsis, it's really about the host dysregulated response to the, uh, the pathogen itself. And I think we certainly feel that that is, that is a component of, uh, of the, the far end of the spectrum with regard to, uh, to, to coronavirus. Um, but there's, uh, there's, there's always this, the sense of that um, the organist fu function, by that definition, is not caused directly by the virus itself, but by the secondary cascade, the, the immune dysregulation that it causes. And so one, one wants to, be to, to differentiate over here, because if the sole organ dysfunction is a pneumonia, and the manifestation is hypoxemia and peridoxination, but there are no secondary organs involved, that would, could technically meet the sepsis criteria per sepsis three of, uh, of suspected infection and organ dysfunction with SOFA score of greater than two. But I'd ask you a question, would that qualify as sepsis? I think that the, conceptually speaking, we're looking for a patient who has more than that, more than simply that the direct invasion of the organ itself leading to some sort of secondary factor. So it's easier to appreciate, I think, if there's dysfunction in the other organs, say there's renal dysfunction or there's clotting disorder, for example, or there's hypotension. Um, but this, this, I think, gets at this, uh, this, this touch point with regard to, to the sepsis definition, um, differentiating between direct invasion of the organ itself and its secondary consequences. Now, there can be subtlety to this, of course, right? You can have direct invasion of the lung itself, an inflammatory cascade that takes place inside the lungs, that, that even within the lung itself, you could argue that a person has, uh, has sepsis. Now, Mike, and I think that's a great point, and we have some questions coming in just focusing on that and asking about asking about the cytokine storm syndrome and how the immune response different is different in COVID than it might be in viral sepsis. Is it different? Is it the same? And, and why are we seeing some of these, 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 these well, things? Well, just, just a moment. I think it's uh, time for me to respond to my friend and colleague, Dr. Klompas. Dr. Klompas, I fully agree with everything you say, but let's look at the history of infection. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the simple pneumococcus, group A beta, beta hemolytic streptococcus, too, can cause a wide range of disease. In fact, many people are asymptomatic carriers. Some people get strep throat, 
and some people are afflicted with full-blown pneumococcal sepsis. In fact, I was hospitalized with uh, erysipelas and consequent group A beta streptococcal sepsis, uh, more than doubled my bilirubin, more than doubled my creatinine, and was in the hospital with IV antibiotics. So the conversation about an organism causing a spectrum of disease, I think that that's part of uh, 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 any pathogen's expression. Uh, the issue about, well, is it the organism uh, or is it the secondary immunoinflammatory response? Uh, that's a question that you and I have dealt with now for decades. Um, whether we are, are dealing with, if you will, local invasion by a, a toxin that, that's produced uh, by a, a bacterium, for example, Pseudomonas, and it's simply a, a local necro necrotizing process, or whether we're seeing the overwhelming uh, total body response um, that can affect one or more organs. Uh, it seems that in the case of coronavirus, uh, we are seeing at least two core pathologic processes. One, widespread uh, involvement of epithelium, uh, where it first finds uh, entry in the upper respiratory tract, down to the respiratory type 2 pneumocytes, and then anywhere else it happens to find epithelium, for example, in the GI tract uh, or even in the lumen of the biliary tract. And then there's the secondary endothelial infection. Uh, and we now recognize this virus to have uh, a broad uh, endothelial uh, activity where it is exposed to a variety of uh, secondary communicating cells, uh, mononuclear cells in the blood, which trigger the broad cytokine response. So I think there's every reason to label what we're seeing in the ICU as viral sepsis as the distant pole of what we would all prefer to have, and that is a mild runny nose. But uh, the fact of the matter is, you, I, Dr. Carroll, Dr. Cable, we all seem to work in the critical care environment, as I imagine, to the other 250 participants on this call. So let's call it for what it is, viral sepsis. Those on the far end of the spectrum, I, um, I completely agree. I think one, one question that, uh, that one um, ought to think through, though, is what, what do we gain by calling it sepsis? Now, I hear you say you call, 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 call a stone a stone, a brick a brick. Um, and I think that's, uh, that, that's fair. Um, I think that, that one thing, though, to consider is that the word sepsis has connotations. has connotations both around severity of illness, and I think we would agree in this case that that's perfectly warranted. I think what's come to take on in recent years as well is a connotation, though, about, about management. Part of that is, is uh, around timeliness of management, and I think that's absolutely warranted in this case as well. Part of it, though, also has to, to do that, that um, it's, it sets off a predefined hierarchy of strategies of management for us. And that's really is around lactate checking, checking early antibiotics, and, uh, and fluid administration. I think those are sort of the key, key factors. And um, th the worry would be that if you're practicing medicine um, in an automatic kind of a fashion, that might take you down some bad pathways with this pathogen. Um, now, I think that in the current day and age, coronavirus is so much on our minds that, that nobody is, uh, is going to, to, to miss this and somebody comes into the respiratory syndrome. But as coronavirus becomes part, I think, of the, the mosaic of pathogens uh, that, uh, that, that cause disease with time, um, that, I think, carries some worries for me. 
because somebody who, who, who's on a pathway to bad inflammatory ARDS-like uh, pulmonary disease might not benefit from 30 cc's per kilogram of, of unthoughtful fluids. That person might not benefit from reflexive prescription of uh, vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam. That might be the worry point, that somebody who's not thoughtful like, like you, like all the, the people listening to this webinar today, might not recognize that sepsis is a grab bag and that you can't treat every single individual with a given presentation the same way. You have to understand what is the likely cause of pathogen, what's the pathophysiology, and what's the right treatment for that patient. So this is viral sepsis, but maybe one wants to be thoughtful about those fluids. Maybe one wants to hold off on those antibacterials and go for an antiviral treatment instead. I think you're exactly right. And it's precisely the reason that I showed the slide with sepsis potentially being caused by a variety of pathogens. The reflex to give uh, uh, vancomycin, pip, uh, piperacillin, tazobactam is understandable when the most likely pathogen is a bacteria. But clearly we're dealing with a different pathogen here. If we have severe influenza, uh, weak as it is, I think most people will give uh, Tamiflu, Oseltamivir, uh, and hopefully we'll have an appropriate medical countermeasure, uh, uh, one or more of them uh, developing for this particular virus. So I think the prudence is uh, in choosing the appropriate therapy. Is 30 cc's per kilo appropriate for this particular pathogen? Really, it depends on the presenting physiology. And we've certainly seen people come in exceedingly dehydrated. Some of them come in very fluid overloaded. Uh, and uh, I think the most important thing to recognize is that we are professionals. We do have to identify the most probable pathogen and then select the most appropriate therapies. Now, we've seen some questions come in, and I'm going to ask Dr. Klumpus his view on what is the appropriate strategy for the second pathology that I discussed, and that is the uh, procoagulant effect. All of us who've cared for these patients have seen a variety of, uh, of uh, thromboembolic pathologies, ranging from microthrombi to uh, full-blown pulmonary embolism uh, with immediate cardiopulmonary collapse. It has become, if you will, almost more feared than the pulmonary process, where at least we can watch that evolve using radiography, ultrasonography, and a variety of other tests, including simple application of the pulse oximeter. But when the coagulation problem surfaces, it surf surfaces viciously uh, and rapidly. So what's your practice in uh, use of anticoagulant strategies both prophylactically and therapeutically? That, that's, that, that's a terrific question. This absolutely is a, um, a particular and concerning and unique, I think, aspect of this particular uh, infection. So I, I've, I've seen a wide range of practice. Um, there are some who simply give routine um, uh, anticoagulant, anticoagulant pr uh, prophylaxis alone, some who automatically put every patient onto full-dose therapeutic-dose anticoagulants, and some who... Um, will stop that as the patients get better, some who will continue that even after discharge for a, for a period of time, um, some who will only go from prophylactic dose to, to treatment dose when the patient actually manifests a, um, a, a problem, some who will do uh, almost preemptive imaging uh, to try to identify thromboembolic disease, particularly um, DVTs and the like. 
Uh, so when you see that wide variation in practice from routine prophylaxis alone right through to therapeutic anticoagulation before you've even detected a problem, it's continuing even after the patient recovers, you know that we don't know the answer. Um, so I, I think this is an area that, 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 that is, is ripe for study. I'm struck personally by the frequency of, um, of thrombotic uh, uh, complications, as you've alluded to, which, although I haven't seen good data about this, appear to, to clearly exceed the, the background rate you would expect in a critically ill population. And therefore, my inclination would be for a patient who really has manifestations of severe inflammatory um, disease. Um, and how we define that, I think, is, is subject to, to, to debate and discussion. But if, if somebody is on that, um, the clear far end of the spectrum with, with, uh, with, with overwhelming inflammation, I would veer on the side towards uh, therapeutic anticoagulation. What's your practice? Well, thank you so much for the question. Uh, we have certainly seen uh, the full range of uh, coagulation issues, ranging from the patient who sails through the hospitalization with no problem, all the way to patients who have had uh, intracranial pathology, including brain bleeds, as well as thromboses of the sinuses, uh, to the more prosaic issues of significant pulmonary embolism, uh, as well as thromboembolism in the arterial tree. Uh, our current approach is that every patient who comes in to a hospital with COVID-19 uh, should, unless there is a specific uh, contraindication, uh, should receive uh, anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin, uh, usually at about 40 milligrams a day. If they develop signs and symptoms of uh, significant thrombosis, uh, that'll move up to therapeutic anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin, uh, typically 80, uh, 80 milligrams twice a day, uh, and then if there is a life-threatening event, uh, there tends to be much more uh, aggressive uh, anticoagulation um, with questions uh, being asked, should there simply be antithrombotic care uh, or should there be an address of the platelet axis as well? I think most of us who are involved in the ICU are very concerned about uh, hitting the thrombin pathway and the platelet pathway simultaneously uh, because those patients also tend to have many invasive lines up to and including ECMO and they can bleed severely. We're seeing coagulation manifest in all of the extracorporeal circuits. Uh, our CRRT circuits clot regularly. Citrate doesn't seem to work terribly effectively. ECMO has been an ongoing challenge. Uh, and I think that we, we have yet to understand what is the optimal prophylactic or therapeutic regimen. I think the good news is, is that many groups are setting out on prospective randomized controlled trials, comparing different approaches to anticoagulation. Uh, and with uh, the rapid accrual in these trials, I, I hope that we'll all have a better answer um, in the next several months. As to what should be measured, I think uh, measures of coagulation and hemostatic activation, the so-called MOCA panel, uh, another acronym there for you, including measurements of uh, C-reactive protein, uh, ferritin D-dimer, um, uh, fibrinogen, 
are all helping us uh, identify where along the trajectory the patient is in their coagulation abnormality. One of the things I hope to learn from our audience is how many of them are routinely testing their patients, not just with the chemical test, but with also thromboelastography, which uh, in our hands and in the papers that are crossing my desk as editor-in-chief of the journal, uh, we're seeing very different sorts of experiences. So I hope that people will chime in in the Q&A and uh, share a little bit of what their experiences have been, uh, not only um, uh, treating these dread complications, but also the types of measurements they're making to try to assess where their patients are along the, uh, uh, the uh, coagulation pathology. Well, while we're waiting for those responses to trickle in, I was wondering if either of you wanted to address um, some of the earlier questions about uh, immune response and cytokine storm syndrome, which seem to be also to use Dr. Klompas's words, um, out of proportionally higher incidence in some of these COVID patients than we would typically see in viral sepsis. Michael, do you want to start on that one? Go for it, Tim. You go for it. All right. Uh, I think there's more written about cytokine storm in this disease than we actually know. Uh, the early measurements uh, for many of the cytokines were all over the map. And I think uh, that there was great hope early on that one of the drugs aimed at interrupting the IL-6 pathway in and of itself would prove to be a magic bullet. As we've seen from some of the early studies, um, the, the signals are mixed. Uh, the interfering with the IL-6 pathway may have had actually adverse effects in the milder cases, and we're continuing to see studies going on in the more severe cases. What's crossing my desk as editor-in-chief uh, are uh, case reports and some very limited information about novel strategies for interrupting the pathway. We are seeing that uh, there is a physiologic compensatory response to uh, blocking the IL-6 receptor. People make more IL-6. Uh, it uh, is not as simple as uh, the gauge is reading too high. We can simply, uh, you know, stop the gauge from reading too high. There are so many parallel and redundant pathways in human physiology that that's not all there is to it. That said, there are certainly some characteristic cytokine abnormalities and a variety of approaches that are being taken uh, to try to mitigate that. We've talked about blockade of IL-6. People have tried to block, uh, block IL-1 or its action at the receptor to uh, block the use, block TNF. We're starting to see trials proposed of blocking the downstream signaling pathways, such as the JAK pathways. Um, I think there's a lot of innovation going on in the field, and I think it's just too early to tell uh, in which patients these and, and which therapies are likely to be effective. I think we do have some lessons to be learned from the early days of bacterial sepsis, where we lived through um, uh, 10 or 15 years of biological response modulators. It's going to be very careful to ensure, and I'm gonna use the jargon, that the punishment fit the crime. Uh, we need to make sure that the patients in whom we're administering these therapies really do have abnormalities because 
for any medical therapy, if we're not helping the patient with it, we're almost certainly hurting the patient with it. So the stratification problem, identifying the biomarkers quickly, and then figuring out which one of these biological response modifiers might be appropriate, yeah, I think that's on the horizon. Over. I don't think you need to be very old to uh, see the history of failed um, targeted biomarkers in critical care. Um, Dr. Columbus? No, no, just that I completely agree with everything that, uh, that was stated. Um, we've, uh, we've tried tesemizumab uh, locally, IL-6 uh, blocker, and, and have not been particularly impressed with the, uh, the, the, the results. Um, and I think that's a reminder that um, not only to be mindful of our history of, uh, of failed biologic therapies in, in sepsis, also to be cautious about early case reports and case series that appear to suggest promise. So you'll remember that um, back in, must have been March, there were um, case series coming out of China suggesting that tocilizumab um, really had a substantial effect on, on, on patients. Um, and uh, that, that, that does not appear to be borne out. And I think we've seen what happened with the hydroxychloroquine plus minus adithromycin story initially looked quite promising based upon uh, secondary um, markers and, and, and again, does not appear to be bearing out. And as we've heard, both cases might actually be sources of harm. So um, let's keep our wits about us as we consider new therapies and uh, recognize, well, spade a spade, meaning that, that if something experimental should be treated as such, really um, given within the context of a, of a clinical trial, a learning event, um, and that we should try to rely instead upon those things which are more tried and true. So I think that brings up a key point. Uh, we all uh, are involved in trying to provide the best care for the patient in front of us. The fact of the matter is we really uh, don't know what we're doing yet with this disease. We're doing the best we can in terms of what we understand about sepsis care, supporting the lungs, supporting the kidneys, making sure there's adequate nutrition, trying to prevent blood clots. But that's very different than finding the right medical countermeasure. And my uh, ask of my colleagues um, in my various roles is to recognize the importance of a well-designed, randomized prospective trial. Whether it is a classical trial or an adaptive trial, I think that the best way forward is going to be to engage ourselves as professionals, to engage our patients and our families, to make sure that we have master protocols that can be applied reliably nationwide so we can quickly test um, the effects in a way of, of all of the proposed therapies. We can quickly test them and identify the ones that are working and keep them, and importantly, identify the ones that aren't working and get rid of them. Well said. Well, so we're getting, unless you would like to respond. No, no, just to hear, hear. hear. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, we're getting quite a few questions uh, from the audience in and about steroids. Um, you know, it's, it's always a debate in patients with sepsis and, and, uh, and or uh, needing pressors, hypotension, but now in the setting of new COVID ARDS. So, so I, I want you guys to take on that and timing of steroids. 
Yeah. I'm going to refer uh, my listeners to uh, Critical Care Explorations. It's an open access online journal. That's CCE, Charlie Charlie Echo Journal.org, CCEJournal.org. You will find in uh, the latest articles uh, released in April, uh, Jesus Villar was the first author, a terrific summary of corticosteroid use in COVID-19. We are starting to see follow-on submissions from that uh, with what I would call sectored patients uh, where there is advocacy and some early evidence for favoring the use of corticosteroids. But I would hasten to add the evidence is not all in and it would be inappropriate to declare steroids as standard of care. Michael? No, I think that, I think that's right. I think I think that um, of concern is that there there has been a suggestion of harm in some patients with uh, with with steroids. That therefore acquiring that evidence um, that it, of of benefit in this particular disease is key. And I, I think that brings us back actually to our original discussion about saying that not all sepsis is the same. That the particular pathogen and its particular pathophysiological pathway the particular inflammatory cascade it's causing um, matters. And that th therefore one cannot take a one size fits all kind of approach. And that might be that, that, um, that steroids that might be uh, helpful in a patient who has refractory shock um, uh, due, due to a bacterial pathogen and might in fact realize the benefit from steroids might not necessarily be the same in this particular disorder. And uh, you know, particularity, I think, of, uh, of coronavirus um, in that subset of patients with very severe uh, inflammatory disease, the, what I'm going to call sepsis secondary coronavirus, that I add some specificity to it, um, that uh, cardiovascular collapse is actually a less common feature, um, which again would make you wonder if, if, uh, uh, if one can extrapolate the steroid experience from non-coronavirus disease to this particular uh, entity. So I think accumulating the evidence that's specific to this particular organism is really what we need to be able to answer that, uh, that question. So it sounds like we have a lot of agreement about um, things that, uh, that, uh, that COVID-19 um, does cause viral sepsis, but it may cause a little bit of a different viral sepsis than, um, than other triggers. Is that where we're settling out on this? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the ideal compromise over here would be to say that it does cause sepsis, but I'm not going to use the word sepsis. I'm going to use the word sepsis secondary to coronavirus. And that way I'm <laughs> be I, I, I think that we're going to be in violent agreement on this point. Oh, because we, we don't talk about sepsis if we have modifiers. If we know it's viral sepsis, we talk about it as viral sepsis. If it's bacterial sepsis, we know about, talk about it as bacterial sepsis. And if we know it's the pneumococcus, we call it pneumococcal sepsis. So let's all agree that what we're focusing on as critical care professionals is trying to deal with source control, that is eradicate the underlying cause, but at the same time provide multi-organ support to give every patient the best opportunity, the time and space to heal. Yeah, um, and I think there's a there's a natural inclination to want to um, 
I think uh, uh, Dr. Buckman had said this earlier to find a, a magic bullet for some of these things, um, some of these different um, syndromes and, uh, and uh, uh, diseases. So um, uh, do you think that had anything to do with some of the early, um, uh, the early reports that this was different from uh, viral sepsis, that COVID was a different and distinct um, syndrome and disease? My opinion is, is that we had the same conversation about Ebola and the way we were able to successfully... Yeah, fortunately, Ebola, not many of us saw Ebola, so that was... Well, good. not many did, but those who cared for patients saw uh, patients with horrible multi-system dysfunction, and they treated with uh, advanced system support. And uh, for those who were in an environment where that support could be provided, by and large, if they were had some underlying reasonable health status, they did very well indeed. So I think that using the label viral sepsis, COVID viral sepsis, um, is uh, a, a signature of hope. I, th I think so. Uh, but Hawks, I, mean, I like the fact you said uh, COVID viral sepsis because Ebola viral sepsis really did look different, right? It was around capillary leak and electrolyte disorders and arrhythmias and severe volume depletion, um, and they're, they're, which in turn implies a, a therapeutic pathway for that particular patient that's quite different from, from COVID. So again, right. and, and we can't ignore the underlying uh, uh, pathologic anatomy and pathologic physiology which brings to a, us to a couple of questions. There are some peculiar targets with this virus that I think are not yet well understood. We talked about generalized epithelial and generalized endothelial issues, but we have to deal with why is the brain involved? Why is smell and taste so immediately evolved? Why in pediatric patients are we seeing a Kawasaki-like syndrome? Uh, Dr. Kompas, what is your view on why we're seeing some of these uh, more, I'll use the word exotic or specialized manifestations of SARS-CoV-2 infection? Such, such a good question. I've, I've been, been really wondering about that. And um, I, I'm not a basic scientist, so I kind of cannot give you a molecular answer to that. I'll, I'll say that one thing that, that, that does occur to me more as a, um, as a population medicine epidemiologist kind of a person is that um, we, we know that all organisms occasionally cause rare syndromes. So uh, Legion, uh, Legionella, for example, can occasionally be a cause of, um, of Guillain-Barre syndrome, or um, uh, influenza might cause a transverse myelitis, very unusual manifestations. The fact that we're seeing so many patients with unusual manifestations is either because there's a particularity about this virus that it goes for some of those, uh, those, those particular um, organ sites, or that there is just so much disease, millions upon millions of people infected, that by, by sheer virtue of the absolute numbers infected, that we're gonna see large numbers of people with, with, uh, with, uh, with unusual manifestations, in particular some of these neurological syndromes and cardiovascular syndromes that, uh, that have been described. I know I'm a moderator, so I'm not allowed to weigh in my opinion, but I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, the sheer overwhelming numbers of patients are letting us see things that we may not normally see. All right. So this suggests that there is really a message in the variation of presentation we're seeing. We've seen uh, in the early waves of the virus, 
predilection to affect the old, the infirm, the chronically ill. Now we're seeing younger patients with more uh, disturbing manifestations, 25 and 35 year olds with strokes. We've seen families, whole families be affected, suggesting with very severe disease, even across the age spectra, suggesting there may be a genetic predisposition to some of these responses. Um, and I think that uh, as epidemiologists, um, we, we have a responsibility to, if you will, move up to the 30,000 foot level and say, what is the virus trying to tell us here? Why is this particular respiratory virus behaving in this way? And what is it telling us about the underlying biology? Why is this so different from SARS-1 or MERS? Um, what is the adaptation the virus has made and why is it creating such havoc in the world at large? We don't know the answer to that yet, but if we are able to ask that question, we may find better clues on how to manage the virus. I'm so glad you said we don't know the answer to that because I was afraid you were going to ask me the answer, and I don't know the answer to that. Excellent. So, if he, go so ahead, let Dr. Me ask, let me ask Dr. Klumpus a question. Uh, remdesivir uh, originally came out in China, uh, the, the early data seemed to be not so good, and now we're starting to see data from the United States suggesting that there is an appropriate signal. Should this be standard care? Uh, are we going to be able to get enough of the drug? Uh, and if it should be standard care and we may be a little short on the drug, when during the course of the disease do we want to apply it for greatest effect? Uh, we've learned from our use of antibacterials that uh, industrial strength doses of weapons grade antimic antimicrobials may not be a good idea. Shorter targeted therapies may be better. It's the same thing true for this exotic virus. How should we be thinking about it? Well, I, I think our first priority is to see, the, um, to see a published report. You see a full description of the, the study that was done, the population that was included, the particularities of the, uh, the, the matching, the full spectrum of, um, of outcomes, uh, the degree of follow-up, all the factors that we use to, to, to be able to judge a clinical, uh, clinical trial and to be able to interpret and to know whether it's generalizable to our, to our population. And my sincere hope is that just as the federal government has moved very quickly to grant the emergency use uh, um, uh, authorization for use, they will see equally rapid publication of the full description of the, the trial so we can begin to make some of those judgments. Um, it's difficult to extrapolate from the headlines alone, getting it that, that one gets from the New York Times, um, as to, to, to know um, if, the, if, if the drug is all it's touted to be. I'll, I'll say that I'm cautiously optimistic from what little we have seen in terms of the impact on time to, to clinical recovery and what appears to be a suggestive, albeit non-significant signal towards lower mortality. Um, but I think we want to understand if those are, those are borne out. Um, that being said, to me, it seems to be the most promising option on the horizon, and, and I hope that's borne out when we see a full description of the, uh, the, the science. In terms of when to use it, I, I, I think um, if I combine the two points that you made, the comparison of the, the early data out of China compared to, to, to the hints of what we might be seeing in the NIAID trial, it would suggest that earlier is better. If you wait until the, till, till the horse is out of the barn, the inflammatory cascade has reached a, a storm level, 
um, it might be too much for any drug to be able to, to, to rescue that patient, which would imply that, that an earlier point of treatment might be, be, be um, potentially more successful. But that's pure extrapolation until we see data that's stratified by populations by different levels of initial severity of illness at the time of prescribing. I don't, I don't think we'll know. Tough question. So I, I, the next, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to walk me through what you do when you're called to see a patient, perhaps in the emergency department uh, or perhaps on the ward, who is thought to have uh, COVID-19. Uh, the nasal swab has been drawn. It's been sent to the laboratory. Uh, meanwhile, the patient is in front of you. Uh, what are you looking for on physical exam? What are you looking for in basic laboratory testing to decide if this patient really does have COVID-19, how sick the patient is? Yeah, no, good, good, good question. So I think, I think you wanted to, to first of all get a sense of who, who is this patient? What's the underlying substrate that you're dealing with? What kind of a host is this and what's their susceptibilities? An old person, a young person, an immunocompromised person, a non-immunocompromised person. Uh, there was a paper published in the New England Journal, I think Dr. Mira, um, in the past week, looking at uh, risk factors for death amongst about 8,000 patients with, with, uh, with COVID. And um, the risk factors were um, male sex, um, age of 65, coronary disease, um, arrhythmia, COPD, CHF, and smoking. Um, so that gives you some glimpses to, to, to what the potential uh, organ susceptibilities that might make a person prone to, 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 to worse outcomes. I'd want to take those into account. In terms of the patient, um, him or herself, um, I, I, I always continue to put a great deal of reliance in that initial gestalt. How does a person look, sick or not sick? What are the determinants of that? Um, I, I think we all wish we could find a way to distill that clinician sense into, into a bottle so that we could, uh, could teach it and could share it. Um, but it has to do with uh, what's, what's the appearance of the patient? Is the patient compass mentis? Is the person able to focus upon you? Are they diaphoretic? Um, are they able to, to, to speak in full sentences or, 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 or not? Um, does the patient have that look of, of, uh, of, of doom? Um, the other factors I think that one wants to look at is some of the, the, um, uh, the, the, the vital sign information. Is a person tachycardic? What's their breathing rate? Um, what's their oxygen saturation? And I think those are some of the, 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 the concrete markers that will help you get a sense to where this patient is upon the, the spectrum. Uh, I like to say to, um, to the medical students when I have the pleasure of working with them is that um, when it matters, vital signs are a physician level skill. And I say that because um, th those who are not invested in the, in the direct care of the patient but are simply doing the, the vital signs pro forma um, might not pay attention to those subtleties, making sure you get the true breathing rate, not just the, the, the default of, tw of 20 for every, every single patient. But a patient who's breathing at a rate of 30, um, that's very meaningful to me. That, that says that patient is in, under physiological duress. What actually is the, the oxygen saturation? And is it a reliable reading? Is it a sustained pattern? Did you catch the patients during a Shane Stokes cycle, for example? And is it actually a, a credible read upon the patient's status? That to me is a marker um, uh, that impaired oxygenation, decreased oxygen saturation is a marker that you have something going on inside the lungs. You have impaired gas exchange over there. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a good external hint that there's an inflammatory process that's taking place inside within the, within the lungs. So I put a great deal of stock in, in, in that. So Dr. Klompas, so um, 
uh, a lot of our, most of the critical care that's provided in the United States is not provided at big academic centers, but at um, smaller centers. Uh, so it, let's assume that it takes 24 hours to get your COVID testing back, which is probably true at the majority of places. Um, let's assume it takes a little while to get uh, the ferritin and the, the other inflammatory markers that you sent back. Um, so are you going to start them on therapeutic anticoagulation? If they look sick, you're going to start them on therapeutic anticoagulation and, uh, and remdesivir and admit them to the ICU? Yeah, and I'd add to that, um, are there any labs that would change your opinion or obese elderly that may that may change change that yeah so, so i think uh for, again from what little we know of the remdesivir severe study the enrollment criteria as i, as I believe was uh, an oxygen saturation of 94 percent or less um so i think that would be the first criteria to see does the patient in any way match the uh, the enrollment population for for the study if they have an oxygen saturation above 94 percent and otherwise look well um i don't think you have a, have a basis to be able to say that, that patient um would would would, would merit it I think what we don't know is that amongst the, the distribution of patients who, who were in the study, did they fall? Did, did most of them have an oxygen saturation of 93%, or were they on mechanical ventilation? Right? Where did they fall in that spectrum of impaired oxygenation? And, and that might give us a better sense as to um, how 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 immediately you ought to jump upon um, somebody who's in that that uh, more quote unquote mild end of the the, uh, the, the spectrum. Um, in terms of anticoagulation uh, on a empiric basis, um, I, 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 my personal practice would be to go for prophylactic uh, dosing with low molecular weight heparin, exactly as Dr. Uh, Dr. Buckland um, suggested, rather than going to automatic full-dose therapeutic um, uh, uh, anticoagulation, because I, am, I do respect the potential for the, the complications of anticoagulation, and particularly if you don't even know the patient has COVID, um, that might be an error. I'll tell you, in our hospital, we happen to be in a very high incidence um, region of the country. I think Massachusetts has the third highest uh, case rates in the country. Um, nonetheless, of all the people that we test in our inpatient population, only 20% turn out to be positive. So four to five times even in a hospitalized population with a compatible syndrome, um, it's actually the exception rather than the rule that it's, uh, that it's COVID. And so that would color my thinking as well before I start to give empiric um, COVID-specific um, antiviral treatment or anticoagulation. So I'm going to simplify my approach. I'm going to look at the patient. I'm going to get the pulse oximetry. <clears throat> if it's below 94%, that has my attention. No matter where I am, I'm probably able to get a CBC. So I'm going to look at the neutrophil, the lymphocyte ratio, and the absolute lymphocyte count. If there is a significant depression in the lymphocyte count, uh, and a patient who comes in feeling poorly below 94%, my next move is going to be to examine the chest, uh, either with a chest X-ray or a uh, lung ultrasound. Many people have handheld uh, 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 ultrasound machines that they put in their pocket, and uh, we're finding from the early studies that there are characteristic findings because this virus does seem to... Uh, uh, enjoy life out in the periphery of the lung. So a combination of looking at the patient, pulse oximetry, um, uh, looking at the CBC, uh, and a quick uh, look at the lung by some objective criteria uh, is probably going to be enough for me to set some level of probability that I'm dealing with COVID-19 or not. 
I think I'm dealing with COVID-19, absolutely, this patient gets anticoagulated, gets started on low-flow nasal oxygen, and gets uh, parked in the hospital. Now, if they were above 94%, probably wouldn't think about it, but we know these patients can crash quickly. So I'm going to put them in an, into an environment where the single most important things I have at hand are continuous recording pulse oximetry and an experienced critical care nurse. There is no safety device that has ever been invented or will be invented more important to patient safety and patient outcome than a well-trained critical care nurse at the bedside. And uh, having that experienced clinical eyes uh, and telling me that the patient doesn't look the same way the patient did an hour ago is probably the most important early warning system we have. There has been a reliance, and in my view, almost an over-reliance on the data. Sorry, forgive me to interrupt, I was just intrigued. Any patient with an oxygen saturation below 94% is going to go to an ICU? No, but they're going to get into a bed where there's a well-trained nurse. Um, I, I think that, you know, we, we can't admit everybody to the ICU, although I would like to. What I really count on is having that well-trained professional at the bedside. The person who can see the respiratory rate is not 20, it's actually gone up to 28. Who can see the nasal flaring and the use of accessory muscles. Who can see that the patient is not quite as alert as they were a little while ago. And look at the oxygen saturation and say, you know, it's 91, which isn't bad, but it was 94 last hour. We need to get in here and make a decision because these patients crash incredibly rapidly. Well, on, on Nurses Week, I think that's a good, uh, a good conclusion to, to finish with. Um, we have just a few more minutes left in the podcast, so I, um, the webinar. So I wanted to, to um, uh, first of all, ask um, Dr. Buckman and Dr. Klompis if they had any final thoughts. Uh, this reminds me of the early days of the HIV epidemic. Uh, I am hopeful that we will have an effective medical countermeasure soon. Uh, hope is not a strategy. I believe that we are going to be dealing with this virus and patients becoming infected with this virus for a long time to come, pending uh, true effective antiviral therapy, effective immunomodulatory therapy, and truly, hopefully, a vaccine. We need to not forget the basics of patient care including prevention. Uh, we are coming out of respiratory season in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, we've now got about six months to settle through this, but we need to remember to immunize people against the flu uh, and to take all the other steps we can take to ensure our patients' optimal health. So when they do become infected with coronavirus, they have the best chance of survival. Uh, this is going to be a challenge for all of us. I think there are good things that are coming out of this. For example, the evolution of telehealth and the adoption of telemedicine in many forms. I think the opportunity to think about how we care for patients as individuals and as members of teams is changing. I think our focus on personal hygiene, uh, hand washing, and trying to avoid spread, not just to ourselves, but to other patients, going to have very positive effects in many aspects of care. 
But the problem is we're going to be dealing with this virus for a while. Dr. Columbus? I echo those, uh, those beautifully expressed uh, sentiments. I do think we're dealing with this virus for a long period of time. I am struck by the fact that even amongst the epicenter of the outbreak in this country, uh, which I'd say is New York City, that the seroprevalence study suggests that 20% has been, been infected. And you can be a glass half full, kind of glass half empty kind of person. On the one hand, 20% is a lot. That's, that's a big chunk of the population. That's a couple million people. Uh, but by the same token, that means 80% of the population is still susceptible. And as we come out of, um, more and more states come out of social distancing or, social or um, home isolation, the, the worry is that many um, are going to acquire this virus. And I think the question is, is it going to occur at a slow burn? Will there be large clusters of infection that risk overwhelming the medical system again in certain locations? And I think that's a great fear for us. Um, I think that this has been a time of heroes, um, superheroes on the front lines of, the, of the, the, the medical system from across the array, from the um, from our security people at the, at the entrances, the nurse at triage, the emergency providers, the respiratory therapists, the nurses, the doctors, the, um, the, uh, every single member of the, the, the care team. Um, and I think that's been an amazing aspect of this outbreak to be able to, to, to witness, to see people drawing from within themselves the capacity to, to stretch, to do more than they thought capable, to overcome their fears, and to be able to do what we're supposed to do we put on this, this planet to do as, uh, as, as medical care providers, just trying to get our patients through. And so that I think has been um, a note of hope, a note of optimism, that I hope will give us the strength as we try to, to, to continue to carry our society through what will be the inevitable additional waves of this, uh, this epidemic. Thank very you. well said. <laughs> thank you. Very well said. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Buckman and Dr. Klompis for joining us today on this webinar and my co-host, Dr. Cable, um, for joining us as well. Um, thank you all for a great, um, great hour discussion. And um, we'll see you next Thursday for uh, next week's webinar. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank, thank you. you very much. Be safe and be well.